it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. One of my favorite rewatchable movies is Mr. and Mrs. Smith, starring Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie. Now, when Mr. and Mrs. Smith came out of theaters, Brad Pitt was still with Jennifer Aniston. But like a lot of other people who saw Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it was kind of hard not to notice the electricity between Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. Now, as everyone knows, Brad Pitt eventually left Jennifer Aniston for Angelina Jolie. And for a long time, the tabloids and the media did everything they could to pit no pun intended, but that was clever. Angelina Jolie against Jennifer Aniston. Angelina and Brad Pitt, however, are now divorced. Brangelina, no more. They have six kids together, three of whom were adopted. They are also currently engaged in a very bitter custody battle. But after reading a recent profile of Angelina Jolie in The Guardian, let me just announce I am officially Team Angelina. With that little bit of history of their relationship for context, the word of the week is complicit. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. Now, in this Guardian profile, Angelina opens up about the biggest riff in their marriage, and it was a really big one. Angelina Jolie previously disclosed before this Guardian article that she'd been sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. But she elaborated in the Guardian that even after knowing what Weinstein had done to her, Brad Pitt still chose to work with Harvey Weinstein anyway. In 2009, about four years after Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie became official, Pitt starred in Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, which was co-produced by, guess who? Harvey Weinstein. Then in 2012, Angelina told The Guardian that Pitt approached Weinstein to work as a producer for the film Killing Them Softly, which the Weinstein Company later distributed. Now, here's more context for you. Brad Pitt can't lean on ignorance because clearly Angelina Jolie told him what happened with her and Harvey Weinstein. But even before he met Angelina Jolie, he already knew Harvey Weinstein was a predator because he confronted Harvey Weinstein after his former fiance, Gwyneth Paltrow, told him that Harvey Weinstein had been sexually harassing her. In 2019, Brad Pitt discussed that confrontation with CNN anchor Christiane Amanpour. So, Brad Pitt, it's obviously Gwyneth's story to tell and the reporter's story to tell, but I wonder if you feel, you know, you can add anything to that because you do come out as, you know, one of the heroes of this story. You confronted a guy that very few people were willing to confront, apparently. Oh, well, I think that's, a, I mean, a bit much. I, I have a couple things to say. I mean, at that moment, I was a boy from the Ozarks on the playground and... and I mean, that was, that's how we confronted with things um, and wanted to make sure nothing happened further because she was going to do two films. Y you know, I, I think the, the interesting thing is that we, Hollywood specifically, but the workplace, um, men and women's dynamics is being recalibrated, recalibrated in a very good way. And it's, uh, it's long overdue. And... I do think that's an important story to tell. Now, in hindsight, calling Brad Pitt a hero now seems real cringeworthy in light of what Angelina Jolie told us. Pitt confronted Weinstein in 1995. He wasn't nearly as big of a star then as he was when the opportunity to do Inglorious Bastards emerged in 2009. But being a bigger star should have made it easier for Brad Pitt to refuse to do any business with Harvey Weinstein. But according to reports, Pitt chose to get involved with Weinstein's company again because he really wanted to work with Quentin Tarantino, another Hollywood heavyweight who also elected to work with Harvey Weinstein, even though his former girlfriend, Mina Sorvino, told him Harvey Weinstein was sexually harassing her too. Notice the pattern here. 
women outing a problematic predator only to be heartbroken and disappointed by other men and not just any man, but men who claim to love them and to care about them, but also men who don't think twice about working with their abuser right in front of their face. So now these women are dealing with the double trauma of not just sexual abuse, but deep betrayal. It is this corrupt culture and depraved patriarchy that has allowed the abuse of women to be a feature and not a bug. Right now, the R. Kelly trial is ongoing. And think about the number of people who, even after knowing what happened between R. Kelly and Aaliyah, God rest her soul, still chose to work with R. Kelly, who still chose to look the other way or just acted like it was the price of doing business. R. Kelly was enabled and empowered to abuse young girls and women for multiple decades, just like Harvey Weinstein. Rotting in prison isn't good enough for either of them because they've destroyed countless lives and careers. I don't even know if rotting in hell would be the proper comeuppance for either of them when thinking about the full scope of their atrocities. But as much as R. Kelly and Harvey Weinstein deserve what they're getting, it's the culture that continues to amplify and elevate horrible men on a routine basis that angers me the most. It's the Brad Pitts and Quentin Tarantino's because that's what allows this structure to stay perfectly intact for abusers. There will be occasional bits of justice. A predator is caught here and there, but until collectively there is courage, until collectively there is a deliberate intention to ostracize, shame, exact dire consequences on people like Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly, Women will simply be forced to swallow their trauma, go through the exhaustive process of trying to make themselves whole after they've been broken and sadly live with the reality that their worth means so little to some of the people who swear they value them. The crime itself is horrible enough, but it's the complicity that's gutting the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Now on to today's show. All right. Back in the early 90s, supporting black colleges was a real movement. Of course, there's always been support for black colleges. But in the 90s, it seemed to reach a different peak. Wearing black college sweatshirts and hoodies was a fashion statement. The idea of going to a black college was cool. Growing up in Detroit, I didn't know much about black colleges until... One show brought me into that world, and it was because of this show that I applied to Clark Atlanta and FAMU my senior year in high school. And I got a story to tell about that in a few moments. My guest was the star of that show and her unforgettable portrayal of one of the most iconic characters in television sitcom history still stays with so many people to this day. She was the it girl for much of the 1990s. But while she is known for her beauty and glamour, she was a true triple threat. She could act on television, the big screen, Broadway. She also had a very notable R&B career and she could dance. Her career longevity is a testament to her enormous talent. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Jasmine Guy. So I missed out on the opportunity before to meet you because I don't know if this ever made it in your direction. But Miss Guy, a few years ago when I was anchor on Sports Center, we decided we wanted to recreate the different world thing. And we got everybody from the cast in it except for you and Kadeem Hardison. I have to send this to you at some point, but we redid the theme song and all of that. We had everybody in it. It was really fantastic. When was this? This was, this would have been in 2017. So you guys were shooting something. That's why you couldn't do it. Okay. I feel like it was some TV show. Uh, was it something on Nickelodeon that you and Kadeem may have done? Yeah, we did this um, thing for with Zendaya. That would have been around that time. Yeah. Yes. 
So we had everybody. We had uh, Don Lewis and Sinbad and Daryl Bell, and we recreated it for Sports Center, and we just had such a great time. But I had to play you in the thing. How did you? I can never do you justice. So I just had to recreate the look, and that was it. So I had a little sort of pencil kind of skirt on. Uh, the Whitley Gilbert character used to wear all the time. And of course, I had the hair, everything. It was a lot of fun. And to this day, that was um, one of the best things ever created on SportsCenter. Are you kidding me? It got over like 3 million views. And people say it was the best thing they'd ever seen. I mean, I'm definitely going to send it to you. I'm telling you right now, I had no idea this happened, that y'all did that. Yeah, I mean, it was our thing. Uh, like, we ran that theme song for, like, a week. What? Uh, because, of course, we had to pay for the music. Um, the Aretha version, of course. Yes, the Aretha version. But nevertheless, as you know, culturally, that show meant so much to so many people. So it warmed a lot of people's hearts to see that all of you came back for the Different World reunion trip on NBC, uh, which I watched. And I mean, it just takes you back through so many memories. So I just want to know what was it like for you, for everybody to come together uh, like this with a road trip, with all the surprises and everything. When we came together, we we didn't know each other. But um, the love, the fun, the the joy we had was very real. You can't say that about all all shows, you know, because we are basically acting and then we go back to these trailers and you sit there in your room and whatever. But on a different world, it was different because we were all coming there together from different places. Cree was from Toronto, me and Dawn and Kadeem were from New York. Nobody was really living in L.A. So I can't say that it had an L.A. feeling, but I know it had a feeling of coming together. That first season was a little tenuous at best, you know, because we were all on probation, except for Lisa Bonet, because it was her show. But the second season when Debbie Allen came on, and clarified the purpose, the tone of this show. And there is a different tone of an HBCU than this, you know, UCLA with a bunch of black kids in it. Like, where is this school? And I wasn't born in the South, but I was raised in the South. And I just knew certain things weren't abidable, like, Oh, oh, no, we're not calling our professors by their first names. In the olden days, we'd have said that's some white people shit. <laughs> I think you might still say that now. Really, it was also regional. All the HBCUs were in the, um, I mean, they didn't go far past Texas. So when I got to California, all those writers that w- were very apt never experienced that and they didn't know that first thing debbie said she well not first thing i don't know what the first thing she said because i ain't have it like that but she came on the set she saw the pit she said where's the hot sauce on the tables we saw pepper hot sauce and that started everything take these weeds and this fake hair out of these babies hair she started going for authenticity. And that was the genius of her and Bill Cosby for letting her do it. Because why didn't you hire her in the first place? So I wonder, knowing your background, you grew up in Atlanta and grew up basically across the street from Morehouse. If you ever looked at that different world script from the first season that had Marissa Tomei, um, which was always kind of odd to me because I'm thinking I thought they were supposed to be at a black college. Uh, but anyway, and that's no disrespect to her. But did you ever look at the script and say, this just isn't what happens at a HBCU? I actually wrote a script in my naivete that dealt with that issue. With the, why is this white girl going here? And I think in a naive and brilliant way, I addressed that and they said, well, 
we're really not trying to deal with that. Well, then don't introduce it because, you know, why would a white kid go to a black school? I love the naivete of my early creative years because I didn't know that we weren't supposed to do that. Because I was like, this is some bullshit. I could write better than this. And then just went in my dressing room and wrote it. But the thing was, there were other things happening that I didn't know about. I'm coming from Broadway. I'm coming from theater. I did fame when I was 18. But I was already at Ailey's and I was in the theater world and I just didn't understand. I, I really believe that if you have it, you can give it and you will rise. I didn't understand the politics and everything that went on with it. So when you guys came back for the reunion road trip on NBC, how did that even come about? Well, um, you know, we've been in reruns on um, BT, TV One. Uh, Netflix and E decided to launch our show on, on their network. They launched it as a reunion show, but we weren't having a reunion. And so it's very confusing, you know, to people. They thought we were coming back together and doing a reunion show. So for everybody, what did that mean? I mean, I know you guys have probably kept in contact, but I know it's different when you have everybody in the same room. The energy is like we're in sixth grade. Everybody like fell into line. It it was a great experience. It was it wasn't something I don't want to revisit. It was something that I always had fun at. And I trusted everyone. And that is another thing as an actor, like you're taking risks and you're doing things and you're you're having I'm having jokes I wanna tell, you know. And and all of us are funny on the show. I mean, we were laughing all the time and we needed to have everybody's back. Like, I'm not going to let you go out there crazy. And that's the kind of environment we had. We had to add our life experiences to these characters. Well, even though in real life you are nothing like the infamous Whitley Gilbert, uh, when you nailed this role, what is it that made you decide that she needed a thick Southern accent? Oh, that was the first thing I decided because I had already auditioned for um, A Different World twice and had not gotten a role. You did it without a Southern accent when you first auditioned for it? Yeah, I just, well, just kind of went in like me and. It didn't rouse the crowd. And I said, well, I have nothing to lose. I'm going to go in there like this. But I was talking to my mom. I read my sides with her. I was like, is that funny? She said, you know, it's TV. I said, mommy, I have to be funny. I said, what if I talk like Miss Pankert? And she started laughing. I said, okay. Let's do this again. Let's do this again. But um, it started with that. But then I had to rectify that. You know, I was so used to imitating people. That wasn't like the only character I had in my reservoir. You know, I imitated my uncles and my aunties and my, you know, every place we went, I could hear the accent. So it's like, well, this Jasmine thing isn't working. Let me do something that is more interesting, more fun and more funny. Was Whitley always supposed to be somebody from an affluent background? Was that how they always envisioned it? Yes. So, you know, in your sides, you get a, a description of the character and it could be handwritten. And on my sides, as I remember, it said Sydney slash Whitney. A Southern Belle. And I looked at that like, what's a black Southern Belle? Am I supposed to be white? Am I supposed to be like, I really was, I didn't understand what that was. And in the original sides, I was hitting on my professor to give me an A. Wow. Then I get the job and she's a virgin. That is how much um, an actor can bring to the role. But it was also kind of um, more 
gutsy than I had ever been in my auditions previously to that. But I was like, well, fuck it. I'm just going to, you know, I'm already not in this camp. You know, I'm not in this Cosby, a different world camp. But the other thing was, Jamel, that when that show was being filmed, we were already in production with school days. So you got to believe that um, right now you have a lot of outlets. But back then, there were maybe two shows. Maybe it would have been The Wiz, Cotton Club, Lena Horton Show, Cosby. It wasn't like you had five different things to go up from. All of us were going up for the same things. It's a little different now, but um, you were up against megastars. You could be a a no-name off of Broadway and then go on up. I don't know. It's hard to explain. Uh, You explained it uh, well because during that time, it was such limited roles for black actors that you commonly were, like you said, going up against major superstars for a lot of things because they just didn't have a lot of roles for you all. And I could even see like with the casting directors that they'd be like, oh, my God, like, why am I seeing Alfred Woodard, Apollonia, Jasmine Guy? And why am I seeing all these? And because in the white world, that wasn't happening. Yeah. And uh, speaking of major superstars, I don't know if maybe your daughter or somebody else may have told you this, but a few months ago, a clip of you went viral when Denzel Washington surprised you on the set. What happened that day? I did love Denzel and I went on my set and I said, and I think there were, I don't know. I don't know who set design had up in um, Whitley's dorm room. I said, we don't have no Denzel. We don't know Yannick Noah. Let's not be confused. So I had Denzel on the set. The episode was Whitley's birthday. And um, nobody remembered her birthday. And she was all, so she decided to get drunk off some, I think it was red wine, some, I don't know. But I had um, Denzel's picture pin posted in my pillow. And so I, I, you know, I talked to him. We went with that. And the scene was that Don Lewis and the girls would come in and shock me and embarrass me or whatever. And then the second take, we didn't do a lot of second takes. I need to add that because I was like, why are we doing it again? You know, because Debbie was like, if we did it, then we did it. We're not doing it again. Okay, it's not going to get any better than that in the real life audience. And um, I just, the second take, I went into it and I heard the audience murmuring and stuff. So I really went into it. Little did I know. Let me tell you, when I turned around and saw the real Denzel, I really thought I was seeing a ghost. I really did. I thought I had got into my part so much. Yeah, I hadn't seen it until it somehow got released on the Internet and everybody thought it was such a great moment. Yeah, that was a good blooper. I didn't ever know that we were going to air it because I have the whole blooper. But whatever. I didn't know we were supposed to air it. Uh, You created one of the most classic characters in television history. This is a question I ask all of my guests to appear on Jamel Hill is unbothered. Uh, You've also had an amazing uh, Broadway and film career. When is the first time you felt famous? It was here in Atlanta because I, you know, I grew up here and my little sister took me to this beignet place on Ponce de Leon over there by WSB. It's not there anymore. But we're eating our donuts and we're getting ready to go to Lenex and do our thing right. And she said, what is this girl staring at me? And she realized after a while, she said, oh, you're being recognized. And it was here. And it was Atlantic Small. And then it happened gradually, but um, 
Yeah, that was the first thing. It was right here. I think it was second season. It must have been second season because Lisa Bonet took all that for that first season. She was our star, and she was the one that took all of that hanging in the limbs and taking pictures and all of that stuff. How did you handle all that fame? I mean, you're in your 20s. Your picture is everywhere. You do Harlem Nights. How do you handle and process all of that? I've always felt so grateful for that. But um, my real life demeanor is about the work and the people that I work with and where they're you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, depending. So I don't know that I understood it. It was kind of insulary. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, was it ever difficult to deal with? Uh, because I'm self-conscious and um, I don't know. It just depends. Because some people come up on you the wrong way. I'm alone a lot. I'm little. I'm a woman. So you, you just can't come up on me a certain way. I don't have that much here in Atlanta, but definitely um, in New York and L.A. I, I had to deal with that. Do you think somebody could walk into a major network today and say, hey, I've got a great sitcom about an HBCU? Do you think a different world could be made today? Well, I would like to be a part of it. I think that would be awesome because it really is a whole nother experience. And um, I think. We have tried to do it in a certain way, you know, with, um, sorry, I'm getting a little emotional because you have all different stories for different genres. You can't do one HBCU story. And really, was that an HBCU story or a love story or was it a teenage story or a you know what I mean? Good writing is good writing and um, good execution is that, too. You know, our stories are not told monolithically. I mean, that's not possible. Like, I would have been on uh, Below Deck with y'all, but you wouldn't have known me. And I've been like, hey. Oh, you could be on Below Deck with me anytime. Trust me. <laughs> Awesome. I was like, that's what I want to do with my girlfriends. But when when we, you were on Black Love, I, I said, there's no way I, I, I would have been able to do that show back then. You know, there's no way 15 years ago we would have been able to do that because we wouldn't have had the network support. Well, that's why I asked you if the show you all did, if it could be made today, because it was so many things going on, especially obviously once you all got Debbie Allen and she took it over. It was just so many great, wonderful, nuanced topics on the show. I mean, think about the fact that A Different World was doing a show about date rape and sexual assault way before anybody else was or about the riots and racism and all these other heavy topics. So that's why I don't know how a network would deal with that today. I don't know if they'd be courageous enough to stand behind an all black cast with a black executive producer, a black show the way that it happened with NBC then. I think you're right. And you, you know enough about how um, the networks run and all of those shows were fights. They didn't just roll over, you know, they had to go through a certain process and then we had to make it funny, which was, let me tell you, the funniest things come from reality and then come from, oh, Lena's burning the dorm room down. Hallelujah. That ain't funny. What happens with our show was that Whitley hadn't had sex yet. But she had been acting like she'd been fucking for a long time, okay? So this is what you get, right? Then we have this age show that is like everybody's monitor is on it, you know? But I'm going to say they don't do that for the white shows. They don't do that monitor thing. Because we're watching white shows going, how come we can't fart? How come we can't? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
because we got married with children, which I love. We got, um, I don't know. Married with children is a really good example where you have a non-traditional show and non-traditional stuff happening. Even with Roseanne, it was the same way. You know what I mean? Exactly. They got away with a lot of shit. And we were like, I'm like, oh, who does? And Debbie was the one to push that. And Susan was the one to push that. And I was like, Okay, well, how come Debbie Allen and Susan Fales aren't on the cover of Essence as the first producer and exec producers of a major number two black show? I just feel like we kind of missed our opportunity. Like, do y'all realize what's going on? Diane Carroll told me what was going on. She said, I never thought I would see this. Is Julia, we're all white men, the only woman, the only black, the only whatever. We got to listen to each other's stories and not wait to be told. That's a word right there. But listen, there's so much more I want to talk to you about. Definitely want to talk to you about Harlem Nights, your books, which I think a lot of people would be very surprised by the subject matter. Um, though not if they knew your background, they wouldn't be surprised about it. Uh, also, your relationship with Tupac. Uh, I want to ask you about that. And of course, you have a beautiful daughter that you've raised. So we're going to get into all of that. But we're just going to take a very quick break and be back with more with Jasmine Guy. In October of 2019, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about how top black high school athletes should return to black colleges instead of attending predominantly white colleges, which would not only continue the intended mission of HBCUs, but give some of these treasured black institutions an opportunity to build a stronger financial foundation. Send the money flow through HBCUs, many of whom are rooted in black communities. It would be revolutionary. That piece sparked a lot of conversation and, of course, some backlash, even from some black people. Some of them questioned loudly whether I had any right to stick my nose in HBCU business, especially since I graduated from a PWI, shorthand for predominantly white institution. If I thought HBCUs were so critical to the growth of the black community, if I believed so much in their value, why didn't I attend an HBCU? That was the common question I was getting after that piece came out. Well, I got a story to tell about why I didn't. All right, let's hop in the DeLorean and go back to 1992 when I was entering my senior year of high school. As I always say, I'm older than I look. I was narrowing my list of colleges. And because of the influence of a different world, two of the colleges in my final four were HBCUs, Clark Atlanta and Florida A&M. The idea of going away for college was slightly terrifying, but mostly it was exciting. I wanted an HBCU experience just like Whitley, Freddie, Kim, Dwayne, Wayne, and Ron. I also wanted warmer weather, which Atlanta and Florida definitely could offer. I was sick of being in the Michigan snow. I also applied to Michigan and Michigan State. Michigan at the time was actually my top choice. Now, I know that given how much y'all hear me put on for Michigan State, that seems unbelievable. And I'm sorry to disappoint my fellow Michigan State fans who didn't know that. But understand that the University of Michigan is maybe 40 minutes from Detroit where I grew up. And on top of that, I was in high school when the Fab Five ascended to the height of their popularity. Michigan football was dominant. It obviously had great academics. It was damn difficult not to be influenced by all of that. When I was a rising junior, I applied for an apprenticeship program at my hometown newspaper, the Detroit Free Press. The apprenticeship program was a life-changing experience for me and other budding high school journalists who were in the program. The point of the program was to expose Detroit area high school minority students to the journalism profession. We were required to work 20 hours per week at the Free Press. Each apprentice was assigned two mentors. We were taught the ins and outs of journalism, how to develop stories, how to structure them, how to interview people. Oh, and we also got paid $10 an hour. I was balling, son. Now, there was a woman named Dr. Louise Reed Ritchie who ran the program. Now, mm, trying to think of the best way to describe Dr. Ritchie. 
You know how on the Cosby show, Claire Huxtable would professionally and gracefully ether people when they were out of pocket. Well, that was Dr. Richie. She was a straight shooter and she did not take any of our shit. Dr. Richie had run the apprenticeship program for years, but she was leaving that position to go to FAMU to run the school's brand new journalism program. Dr. Richie believed in me and she believed that I could someday become a great journalist. She encouraged and by encouraged, I mean, she hounded me to apply to FAMU. So that's how the Rattlers wound up in my final four. Even though sometimes I wished Dr. Richie wasn't so tough on me, I knew she could make me better. I knew she wouldn't let me slack off. That's the ironic thing about kids. They despise you sometimes for being too tough on them, but deep down, they kind of know it's good for them. Now, I had an academic scholarship in my back pocket, but there was a catch. If I stayed in state, that scholarship would cover all of my tuition and fees, provided I kept a 2.0 grade point average in college. But if I went out of state, I would only get three or $4,000 a year toward my tuition. And as y'all know, that out-of-state tuition price hits different. However, I had two things on my side, poverty and Dr. Ritchie. My mother hadn't been working steadily, so I was going to be able to get a Pell Grant, work-study loans, and Dr. Ritchie promised me that she would pull together some of her resources to get me some extra money. That made me put FAMU in the pole position above the other colleges I was considering, but I had one final, but hugely important, hurdle to clear. I had to convince my mother that going to FAMU was the right choice for me. When I told my mother I wanted to go to FAMU, Tallahassee, Florida, the reaction I got wasn't the one I was expecting. It was a flat out no. Actually, let me be honest. It was a hell no. My mother wasn't comfortable with the distance. And when I brought up how Dr. Richie said she would look after me, she then referred to one of the proverbs in the Black Mama Handbook. A proverb many of us have heard whenever we ask to do something like spend the night over a friend's house while growing up, which is, I don't know that woman, referring, of course, to Dr. Richie. I was not pleased. I told Dr. Richie I didn't think I was going to be able to attend FAMU because my mother was against it. Dr. Richie, who, by the way, also is a black woman and she herself was raising a young son with her husband. She offered to call my mother and try to ease her concerns. Big mistake. Also in that black mama's handbook is don't tell me how to raise my child or I'll do what's best for me and mine. Even if it's just one of you. I never understood that. That talk with my mother completely backfired and she cussed Dr. Richie smooth out. My mother did not appreciate another woman butting into her business. Dr. Richie told my mother I could do laundry at her house, come over for home cooked meals, spend the night whenever I needed to, and that she just would generally look out for me. And my mother just wasn't having any of that. As I mentioned, Dr. Richie was married at the time. And in my mother's mind, she wasn't about to have her 17, soon to be 18 year old daughter all up in the house of some people she didn't know, especially one that had a grown ass man in it. And just like that, FAMU, as well as my dreams of attending a black college, were done. I didn't even submit my application to Clark because if my mother was that resistant to me going to FAMU, there was no way in hell she was about to let me go to Atlanta where I didn't know anybody. Now, some of you listening right now might agree with what my mother did. Some of you might think she was being entirely too overprotective. There's no question my mother let her own fears dictate how she handled that situation but I actually understand it. I didn't then, but I do now. Now it's normal, of course, for parents to want the best for their children and to protect them. But understand that my mother is a rape and sexual abuse survivor. And because she was still dealing with her own trauma, the idea of me being thousands of miles away from her and possibly in close contact with strangers triggered her in a much different way. The thing is, I didn't even have to obey what my mother said. My mother wasn't in a financial position to contribute anything substantial to my education. When I was seven years old, I was involved in a life-threatening car accident, a future I got a story to tell. And after paying six-figure medical bills, my mother put the remainder of the settlement in a trust for me that I was eligible to receive once I went to college. Because my mother struggled to maintain steady employment and we were on and off welfare when I was growing up, 
we had to dip into that trust fund to move out of a pretty dangerous situation. So by the time I got to college, I had maybe two or three grand left. I had to pay for school on my own. And when you foot the bill, technically, people can't tell you what to do. But it was important to me that I had my mother's blessing. It was important to me that she had peace of mind. And thinking about it now, the situation unfolded exactly the way it was supposed to. I actually wound up enrolling in Michigan State because Michigan decided to eliminate their journalism program. And the rest, as they say, is history. And now back to more with Jasmine Guy. So something a lot of people may not know, Jasmine, is that you wrote a biography on Afeni Shakur, Tupac's mother, uh, called Evolution of a Revolutionary. Can you explain that? How did you come to develop a relationship with Tupac and his mom? Well, I was looking at revolutionary sisters during that time while I was on a different world because I felt like the female story was not told. But I didn't. I, I didn't have any way to get to people. I met Tupac at a party, Jada's birthday party. We became friends, started hanging out. And shortly after that, he got shot. And I had never been involved in that, but I knew I needed to be there. I didn't know how to be there over the phone, you know, and Tupac and I became friends. He's a lot younger than me, like 10 years younger than me. And when um, Tupac was staying with me during his first bullet wounds, I got close to his mom and his aunt and his niece and his sister. You know, his whole family was there. And I would ask questions like, you know, how come y'all aren't working? Like, what is going on here? I'd never seen anything like that coming from, I would say that it was a class difference. When somebody gets out of the ghetto, they bring everybody with them. I didn't have that mentality. I had like, you're supposed to do your thing. You're supposed to do your thing. And, um, I talked to Fanny a lot because um, I wanted to know her story outside of her son. And at the time that I met her, everybody was dependent on her son. But she had a story to tell. What did it mean for you to take her story, turn it into a book that people could then learn from? Well, I I went to my mom and I said, um, I could write this book, but I can't write it without you. And she edited my book. She helped me formulate sentences and things that I didn't get. I'm the only one in my family that does not have a college education. But I do know that I was also raised by my parents. And um, it was kind of the opposite of what everything people were saying. I'm the first one to graduate from college. we had a, a history of family members that were brilliant and graduated from college. There's so much happening in our country right now. How do you think Tupac would process everything that's going on? I think we would have had conversations that might not have been in agreement. But like my daddy always says, we're having a discussion, not an argument. You have to understand the difference. That thing that changed for me was, you know, when I had a baby, it's hard for me to say um, how he would have changed. That changed for me the most was when I had a baby. But I was already 37 when I had my baby. Now, your mom, I believe she was a teacher and your dad was a pastor, but they were both educators, correct? Yes. Yeah. So what was it like growing up being raised by two educators, one of which is a pastor? Well, they both educated us continuously. I used to say at dinner, look, do you want me to tell this story? Stop correcting my English. Let me just tell my story. I know how to talk and I know how to write. But I hated that constant interjection. I I would say, you know, 
he be talking about blah, blah, blah. He is talking about, I'm like, oh my God, really? Are we going back to that? Did you hear what I said? Did you hear what the quote was? But I, I appreciate it because I also feel like nobody would push me more than my parents because they already knew who this baby can be or who she's capable of being. And I was always um, underestimated at school. So I appreciated that. But why were you underappreciated at school? Or you said underestimated, not underappreciated. You know, when we moved to um, Atlanta, I was eight. And I was in the third grade. And um, there were kids that couldn't read yet, that couldn't do things yet. And um, I had been reading for a long time. So I taught them how to read or try to. I needed extra curricular activities like clean up the arts closet because I didn't have nothing to do. And um, I loved my teacher for that. It was the early days of Montessori or personalized education, you know, with Miss Pinkert. When did you realize that you wanted to be a performer and entertainer? I think I was like four or five. We were at my babysitter's and um, I fainted because I wanted the older son of my babysitter's to, you know, pick me up and put me on the bed or whatever. And they were all, oh, my gosh, is she okay? Is she going to be all right? And I was just fainted. And I, I just said, I can do this. I can be a Mary Poppins. So early on, you had a flair for the dramatic is what you're saying. Oh, I did. Yeah. And my dad told me, well, I don't know of a lot of black actresses, but there is Carmen DeLavalade and Dorothy Dandridge. And I was like, okay. I was literally in his lap. I don't even know if he remembers it, but um, it wasn't a deterrent. It was a warning. I don't know how to explain it when you have to tell somebody okay i understand but that isn't done yet and what you're trying to be may not be achievable so i used to think when i was a little kid oh, i'll be a pediatrician because i love kids or but i always sang and i always danced and i always acted does your daughter also want to perform or pursue entertainment. What do you think about that? Yeah. What do you try to tell her about the business that you wish you would have known? She has different talents than I do. And I did put her in dance and gymnastics. And, you know, I think sometimes we throw things at our kids and hope something sticks, you know. But she's very artistic and intelligent and she could always write. But maybe she doesn't want to hear from me that she can write because she may think that it implies I don't think she can act. But that's not true. Like the harder stuff, not the creative stuff, the business part of it, the dues, the fees, the unions, the taxes, the, you know, oh, that $500 looks good now, but divide that in half and that kind of stuff. So you have a role uh, or a series you'll be a part of called Harlem. I know Whoopi Goldberg is also in it. Tell me about the series itself and your role as Patricia. I really work with Grace the most, Grace Byers. This show is um, Megan Good, Grace Byers, Shaniqua Shande, and Jerry Johnson. But I, I met Jerry Johnson literally on a stairwell, you know. Most of my scenes are with Grace because I'm playing her mother. And I'm playing her um, Jamaican mother. So I knew Grace from um, Empire. I mean, knew her, saw her 
when we started working together, I'm playing her Jamaican mother. She has um, an American accent. I'm playing a Jamaican and I'm making sure that I'm telling her what she needs to do. We get off stage and I start talking like this and she starts talking like a Caribbean woman. I said, wait a minute, where are you from? She said, I'm from the Cayman Islands. And I said, oh, that is so fierce. Yes. And then I said, don't you let me go out there sounding crazy. I was concerned about the accent, but I was also concerned about the authenticity of, she said, no, you remind me of, of, of my mother. Because I was coming so hard on her, I would never talk to Imani like that, my daughter. I would just destroy her. But I love that show. I have so much fun on that show. You leave one job before you got another. How did you get so good at imitating voices? Is that just an ability you've always had? I kind of think so. I moved around a lot, you know, and when I meet Actors that are army brats, as they call them, or people that moved around a lot, like a Wayne Brady, like a Darnell Williams. They were moving around a lot and you learn how to talk like the people around you. All right. Well, before we get you out of here, Jasmine, there's a game that I play with all my guests. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. I can't say it's an easy game uh, because you get two choices. You have to pick one, okay? Uh, And it forces you into tough choices. What? So, yes, that's the way it goes. Sorry, not sorry. Okay. First up, singing or dancing? Dancing. Mm, Dancing, okay. All right, school days or do the right thing. And, of course, you were in school days. So, I'm guessing this might be an easy one. School days. <laughs> okay. And do the right thing didn't, I mean, I mean, it didn't have an ending. I mean, these are just school days, really. He's known for his not endings. Okay. Diane Carroll or Della Reese? That's hard. I knew Diane Carroll, so I have to go with um, Diane Carroll more. But I also worked with Della Reese on a Touched by an Angel. And, um... Harlem Nights. And by the way, literally, I know you worked with both women who are fantastic. And I know you have a lot of respect for both. Uh, Okay. uh, Try me or another like my lover. Another like my lover. Really? I think that would surprise most people. It was more, I mean, when lyrically, it was more true to what I was going through during that time. Got you. And okay, finally, the infamous Dwayne Wayne breaks up the wedding episode or the series finale, which I don't think uh, you guys got enough credit for because it's the different world series finale is one of the best series finales ever. I don't really remember the finale because I haven't seen it as much as I have the wedding show. They keep showing the wedding show. I know what I felt during the finale. Mm, so you would go with the finale over the wedding show? I would go with the finale. Yeah. Um. And speaking of the famous wedding show, uh, I read that you said that you actually thought the idea of Dwayne Wayne breaking up the wedding was whack, <laughs> at least initially. And that thing was whack. <laughs> that was basically her way of saying, uh, yeah, you got to be quiet. <laughs> oh, I thought it was cliche. I thought it was better than that. I thought it threw Byron Douglas under the bus. I thought, you know, I, I mean, all I said was that the read through was, please don't do that graduate shit with him banging on the windows. And that's exactly what we did. And, you know. I thought the finale show, I mean, we could barely get through that uh, show. Yeah, I can imagine that being pretty emotional. But people talk so much about the wedding show. Um, Like maybe people just forgot about how good the series finale actually was. It just gave you all the feels, I should say. And the way we were removed was so consistent and disrespectful of the way we had been treated. I mean, we were... Number two, three, sometimes one. And um, that didn't matter to me 
as much as how we have been treated as far as actors and writers and people that came off their show. I mean, it happened delayed like five or 10 years later, but we weren't getting it in real time. Yeah, I remember I had this conversation with Tashina Arnold, who was a guest on the podcast, and she talked about how insulting it was because when they did their 100th episode on Martin, they got gift baskets. When Friends did their 100th episode, they got Range Rovers, and that was very eye-opening for her. Oh, my God. Yeah, very, very eye-opening, and so she never forgot that, and... I was like, man, that just kind of speaks to the disparity. I mean, despite the fact that at one point, 30 million people were watching a different world. 30 million. You know, those are like Game of Thrones kind of numbers. So people have to, you know, they have to realize that I don't think we'll ever see that again in, in television history. But how about why did they put Martin against a different world at the same time slot? There are a lot of things I was saying that was bullshit and how they lift certain people and they'll lift other people. It was very clear to us. We were not stupid. Me, Tisha, Martin, Kadeem, Cree, we were not stupid. So we always had to take things in and take things with a grain of salt. Why did Fox start this network and put their only show against us? Why did you split our audience like that? Because I don't think young people understand that you can only watch things at a certain time. It wasn't streamed. It wasn't, I mean, now that particular power is maybe decimated, but it was very clear to us. Mm, yeah, no, that's a, uh, that's a great point. Well, listen, Jasmine, I want to thank you for joining me and giving so generously of your time. It was so great to talk to you. And I look forward to seeing you on Harlem and all the other projects that you have going on. I know you're doing some things behind the scenes, but I am just so appreciative of your career. And you are a true triple threat. So thank you for joining me and for taking some time. Thank you for doing Black Love. I mean, I wish there had been a show like that when I was married. The way it was done, how nobody was compromised, because that's always the thing, especially if you're the one on TV, your husband come on like, I'm going to get dog. All honor to you and your husband. <laughs> Thank you. I definitely hit the husband lottery for sure. Because um, that has never been our issue. So I appreciate that. Anyway, take care. And we look forward uh, to seeing even more of you. All right. Thank you. God bless you. All right. Jasmine is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Uh, it's taken me a few weeks to gather my thoughts on Texas's new abortion bill, which went into effect on September 1st and is considered in many ways the strongest evidence yet that Roe v. Wade, the landmark case that legalized abortion, is about to die on the vine. Now, I didn't want to address the topic until I could say something beyond what the fucking fuck or are you fucking kidding me? Finally, I'm able to say fuck it, I'm bothered or rather fuck it, my uterus is bothered by this latest assault on women, because that's all this is. This isn't about fetuses or heartbeats or when a fetus is a baby or morality or religion. It's about one simple thing, punishing women. Under this new Texas law, which is called the heartbeat bill, a woman is prohibited from having an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. And to give you an idea of how restrictive that is, realize six weeks pregnant is simply two weeks late for your period. And as women know, your period can be late for any number of reasons that have nothing to do with pregnancy. So if you're a couple weeks late, you might not even think you're pregnant. You might just think you're stressed. On top of that, so many women have periods that are irregular. 
of course, the people who created this bill and the fucking buffoon of a governor who signed this into law probably didn't know that or didn't care because they don't have vaginas, periods or babies or abortions. But the six week cutoff is only one of a number of awful things about this bill. This law also allows private citizens to bring civil lawsuits against abortion providers and those who, quote, aid or abet abortion procedures and plaintiffs can earn damages of ten thousand dollars. For example, if you have a friend who wants an abortion and you drive her to get an abortion, anybody who finds out about it could sue the clinic and you. It's a straight up bounty. Also, rape and incest survivors are not exempt from this abortion law. So if you're raped and you become pregnant and it's outside of this six week window, you're forced to keep the baby. Now, when asked why a rape or incest victim is being forced to have a baby by somebody who's violated them, here's what Texas Governor Greg Abbott had to say. Uh, It doesn't require that at all, because uh, obviously uh, it provides uh, at least six weeks uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. And so for one, it doesn't provide that. That said, however, let's make something very clear. Rape is a crime and Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas by aggressively going out and uh, arresting them and prosecuting them and getting them off the streets. Articulation has left me again. What the fucking fuck? Eliminate rape? Oh shit, well, problem solved. Seriously, how does somebody that fucking dumb get elected? Maybe someone should hand Greg Abbott a synopsis of the rape problem in Texas and America at large. Texas is ranked as the 15th most dangerous state for rape and sexual assault in the U.S. Over 6,100 rape kits in Texas haven't even been tested. Nationally, only 3% of rapists ever spend a day in jail. So good luck with eliminating rape. Governor Abbott, like his evil twin, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has expended a whole lot of energy passing bills that promote cruelty and suppression because he's hoping that faithfully serving extremists will cover for his numerous failures as a leader. He signed an extremely restrictive voter suppression bill before signing this abortion law. Because if he's going to fuck up the state as badly as he has, he wants to make sure fewer people can actually hold him accountable for being a terrible human being. And trust me, Texans have a lot to hold Greg Abbott accountable for. 45 school districts in Texas had to shut down recently. And last weekend, pediatric COVID hospitalizations hit a record high because the good old governor banned masks and vaccine mandates a while ago. Earlier this year, Texas was battered with a winter storm that killed over 200 people and left four million without power because of Governor Abbott's unique brand of incompetence and his special taste for capitulating to big business. As easy as it would be to treat Texas like an outlier. The truth is that Texas is going to be the new rule of thumb in America if apathy, indifference and selfishness continue to be our guiding principles. We naively think that what is happening there can't happen anywhere when in every corner in America, that's exactly what's going on. The extreme is being normalized, mainstream and worse, put in the highest positions of power. They are counting on you and I not to care enough to actually make people like Greg Abbott pay a penalty for their cruelty. If only Greg Abbott had as much respect for women as he has for guns, because in Texas, you can carry a gun publicly without a permit. If you stay in a hotel, you can carry a gun. Gun stores are considered essential businesses in Texas and can't be shut down by the government during any disaster. Guns seemingly have more freedoms than women in Texas. People think we live in an outraged culture, but in my mind, we aren't outraged enough. Or at least we aren't outraged enough about the right things. We aren't sick of this shit enough. We aren't demanding enough. As a woman, do you know how fucked up it is to live with the idea that at any moment your reproductive rights can be taken away from people who don't even understand what the fuck your body does or how it works? See, pro-choice doesn't mean pro-abortion. It means just that choice. And before any of y'all try to get cute and try to relate this to mask and vaccine mandates, there's a very big difference between a public health crisis and a personal choice. Pregnancies aren't infectious. If a woman decides to have an abortion, that has zero impact on anybody else but that woman and her family. 
Isn't it interesting that a woman can carry only one pregnancy at a time? Meanwhile, a man can go out and impregnate an unlimited amount of women. Yet it's only women that can be punished for getting pregnant. If the roles were reversed and it was women who largely decided if men had the right to reproduce, I guarantee you choice would take on a whole new narrative. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Bry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. And please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. Ha. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it.